Genesis 19 this morning. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of that valley. And he looked, and behold... 
the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a surface furnace. But it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, and then we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, sweet Jesus, we love you. We love you for your word. And we love you that you have given us um, stories that convict and teach and equip us. And so we pray over Ryan this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak through him that the words that he has for us today would be words of um, gifts from you of how to understand this passage well. So we pray for your spirit to guide and lead us in this. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. This is how you know God's word's true, right? Y'all are like, this is going to be interesting, right? Well, um, we believe that, as one of the New Covenant partners said, uh, the whole council of God's word is beneficial to us as Christians. Um, And so we're going to lean in this morning. Um, We do have our our elementary age children in here that we have in once a month intentionally to help shape them. And and so the the selection of content that I will choose will reflect that, but I don't think we'll take anything from the the whole meaning of the passage, uh, given that. So we're continuing through this journey through Genesis, and if I could describe it as a, uh, I think a journey is the best way to describe the Christian life. Maybe even a better word is, is pilgrimage, that, that, we, that, that God is working his goodness into us, and he's working sin out of us as we journey along this life of faith. There was a guy, uh, you know, several hundred years ago named John Bunyan who thought the same thing. He wrote, he wrote a work called The Pilgrim's Progress, and it's actually the, the second most read you know, Christian text in the history of the world, just behind the Bible itself. And, um, and this guy wrote The Pilgrim's Progress when, when he was in jail. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. And he just had this vision of this allegory that he wrote um, that, that was really about um, how God completes us on the journey, The Pilgrim's Progress. The first line of it, I wanna read for you. It says this, Here's, the, here's the, kind of how he opens it up. I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. You know, absent the book in his hand, this is exactly Abraham, isn't it? This is exactly, Abraham's back is from the land of Ur, 
He's got this burden on his back. Abraham and Lot aren't really that different in the burden that they carry. If we could, if we could juxtapose those two, if we could look at the differences between those two, they've got a similar burden. They just carry it differently. And I think that's the thing that we've got to consider today is what do you do with the burden of sin that's on your back? Because there's really two ways to go about carrying that burden of sin. We see the way of Abraham. He's got just the same sins. His daughters did the same thing, right? Um, he, he's giving his wife away just like Lot is. But yet he eventually handles his sin differently than Lot does. He, he opens his hand. He opens his heart to the Lord and he, he repents. And so as we get into this today, the question that I want you to consider as we kind of go through this is what do you see to be your biggest burden of sin and how do you go about carrying it? Because we're going to see some things that happen in Lot's life and in the city of Sodom that aren't all together too different from our lives or the cities we inhabit. Our big idea today is this. Our spiritual pilgrimage sanctifies us by exposing our burden of sin. In other words, what life shakes out of us through our circumstances, through our cities, through the places that we work, through our families, is meant to be for our good if we trust the Spirit with it as he exposes our sinfulness. Okay, so uh, let's, let's dig into this today as we, as we kind of look at the difference in Abraham and Lot. I, got, I just want to tell you where I'm going with this. I can't handle every single thing in Genesis 19, but I'm going to try to handle the main things. So here's the outline. Our burdens ex are exposed through our location and vocation, so where we live and where we work. Uh, secondly, our burdens are exposed through what we're willing to sacrifice. Yeah, I heard a mmm. Um, thirdly, our burdens are exposed through, through judgment. So let's dig into it together. We got, we got a lot of ground to cover. I want to Let's get into this location and vocation business here because I think there's some things in Genesis 19 that we overlook pretty quickly here. Um, verses one through seven, let me read it just to remind you. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Remember, these were the angels that were having dinner with Abraham. Um, the Lord stayed back and had this conversation with Abraham when he prayed, remember, for Lot and for the city of Sodom. So the angels go ahead to Sodom and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. That's a key word, gate, uh, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house, spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you'll rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we, want, we actually want to stay on the town square. Lot knows Sodom, and so what's he say? He pressed them strongly. You can't do that. So they turn aside to him, and they enter his house and said. Uh, and, and Lot does a similar thing that Abraham does, if you were here with us last week. He, he, he bakes bread, he makes a feast, and they all eat together. He's showing hospitality. But before they lay down, the men of the city, both young and old, underline this, all of the people to the last man, God wants us to know that every single person in the city is wicked. Every single person in the city is unrighteous. And this will have a, this will have a, a, a great purpose for us as we understand judgment in the New Testament. And, and, um, and he goes on to say this, they called Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? In other words, we saw them come into the city. Bring them out to us that we may know them. I don't have to tell you what that means, I don't think. Um, and so Lot, Lot went out to the man, to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him. 
So he goes out outside, the angels are inside, and he begins to do what? To beg them, my brothers, please don't act this wickedly. Okay, so Lot is sitting at the gate, and what this means in the Bible, what this meant for cities in, in this period of time, is sitting at the gate was kind of like being a city counselor, right? You were kind of making policy for the city. You, were, uh, you, 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 were, you probably had uh, a successful investment or business in the city. You were a leader in the city, but how is Lot sitting at the gate? Alone. Lot's the only one that cares about the flourishing of the city. He's all alone in this. And, and this, this shows us how brutal of a city Sodom is because he is all alone. Um, and, and so the, the thing that I really wanna focus on in this first point is, is not the types of sin that are committed. A lot of people will take this text and they will talk about how this is the text that shows that homosexuality is, you know, is absolutely sinful and it's unique and it's different. And all those things are true, but that's not the main purpose of this. The main purpose of this text is to show the impact of sin in general. Um, and so, so given that, I want to ask this question that will really help us to apply it to our own lives. Why was his walk with God so um, uninfluential in the city? Why was his walk with God and his witness so ineffective in Sodom? It had no effect in the city of Sodom. And he offers these men to stay in his house because he knows what's going to happen. He knows the nature of the people that he lives with. And the, same, the, the thing is, is he was, you remember he was carried off with these same guys in Sodom. Abraham goes and rescues him. He, he lets the king of Sodom go. Lot goes right back, and there's a proverb about this, like a dog returns to its vomit, right? Lot goes right back in to the lion's den. And, and what these, what these um, men in the city want to do is they want to assault these two visitors, they don't know that they're angels at the time, but they are. And Abraham, last week we see he wants to sacrifice and show hospitality, just kind of like Lot did. But Lot, Lot is different. Um, Lot wants to shield these guys from how sinful the city is. He doesn't want them to know just how bad it is in Sodom. And so he offers them to stay in his, in his house. And um, so we come back to this. We see in verse 9, though, uh, that, that, that these men of the city that came and surrounded his house, every single person, I don't know how many people it was, but I gotta imagine it was quite a few. They, they, have no, uh, they have no respect for Lot as a leader in the city. None whatsoever. They say, hey, why don't you come out then and we'll, and, and, uh, and, and we'll do worse to you than we had in mind for those two angels. And, uh, and so he's got no, no uh, effect on the city. The gospel, the good news about being related to God through a covenant relationship and restored has no effect on Sodom. And so my question is, why? Because 2 Peter 2 shows us that Lot cared about God. Lot, even though he was broken, was considered a believer if you read 2 Peter chapter 2. None of the rest of his family is, it doesn't look like. Maybe his daughters are, maybe it was just really bad. I don't know, but Lot is a believer but there's no fruit in his home and there's no fruit in his city. So maybe we would ask, maybe it was just that pagan city. Maybe it was their fault. It was just a real bad place. It was, you know, Megan and I used to live in Las Vegas and people would say, man, Vegas really needs churches. And I'd say, yeah, 
They know it too. The problem is Atlanta doesn't know it, right? It's no different. Sin is sin and, it, and it's pervasive in the world. Maybe it was just the city. Maybe if you would have went to the country and said, maybe things would have been different. Maybe the impact would have been more powerful. Maybe that's the case. I don't think so, though. I don't think that's the issue. Because you could, you could look at these stark examples of other biblical characters who were who related to God through covenant relationships that started with Abraham, who lived and were called in pagan cities. I think about people like, uh, like Joseph, right? I think about people like Daniel. I think about people like Esther. And I think about uh, their walks with God changed the face of the cities and the communities that they inhabited and their families. Their walk with God led to influence in those cities. If these cities that we inhabit, as we've said, are not too different than Sodom, what's our role? What's our part to play? After all, our church is called New City Church because we believe that God is bringing a new city to this earth through his kingdom in your lives. That's what we believe. We believe that that is what the Holy Spirit's doing and that it's on display now. The city of Sodom gobbled up Lot and his family. And friends, the cities around us, Atlanta, Lawrenceville, are gobbling up a lot of our friends and family members too, just like Sodom. It just looks different. And I think, here, I think here's the key point, that it was because Lot's primary call to Sodom was for his own gain, not for God's glory. Genesis 13, do you remember when Abraham takes him out and he says, you can choose any city that you want. You can choose any place because you, our flocks are too big and we've got to separate. Lot sees Sodom and what does he say that he likes about it? It looks like what? Egypt. It looks like Egypt. Lot wanted to go back to Egypt. Sodom was the closest thing he could get back to Egypt. And we said in the Bible, even though I love Egyptians, in the Bible, Egypt's bad, right? Always re, it always represents sin. It always uh, represents captivity that comes with sin. And so that's what Lot wanted. He wanted that. He thought that was best for his life. Think about Joseph. Joseph was different. Um, when, when Joseph looked back on his circumstances that his brothers sinned against him, he looked back, Genesis 50, 20, we'll get here probably sometime next year, but... Um, what did he say? What you meant for evil, God used for good, right? He was able to look back and see that God was working the whole time as he trusted him. Or let's think about um, Esther. Mordecai challenges Esther to step up to rescue her people, even though it's against the law and she can be killed. And what's she do? She preserves her own life, right? No, she serves and follows God. And it could have cost her her life. Daniel, Daniel resists the temptation to indulge himself with the king's food, and he, and he sees it as an opportunity for the kingdom and the power of God to be displayed through his life, doesn't he? And God uses it over and over and over again to influence kings, multiple kings for Daniel. The gospel has that kind of power when it's displayed in our lives, church. In every situation, the primary call was to obedience before God, and the fruit of that obedience had a positive impact on the communities and the cities that they dwelled in. You know where I'm going with this, right? And is Lawrenceville, is my neighborhood, 
Is my workplace any different because I'm a Christian and I'm there? Does it have any impact at all? And it's an opportunity for us to step back and look and consider that. I'm not saying that you're in sin if you don't see the fruit of that, but it's something for us as followers of Christ to consider because God has made no mistake in the places that he's called you, the places that he's called you to and the places that he's called you from. And, and for Christians, we, we have for far too long let our cities and our communities and our workplaces and our neighborhoods uh, set the temperature for us to rise to. But what we see that the gospel offers us is power. And some of us as believers have never experienced that power working through us. So what we do instead is we, we, we kind of act like a, 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 a thermometer instead of a thermostat. You guys have probably heard this kind of metaphor before. We rise to the temperature instead of setting the temperature. And what we see the call of God is in our lives is that we actually have power. It might cost us something sometimes, but to actually set the temperature, to set a temperature that's based on obedience to God. Instead of just um, complaining away um, the, the tough situations that we're in, instead of willing to walk into the hard conversation, our priorities, our career advancement, that bigger and better house to, to get away from all the mess of the city, whatever it is for you, you just have to ask that question because it's hard to live as Christians counterculturally. You know why it's hard? Because it costs you something. It cost Esther something, it cost Daniel something, it cost Joseph something, and it's gonna cost Lot a lot more not leaning into it. And so the question for us is to consider is where are my priorities when it comes to how I relate to the location that God has put me in and the vocation that he's called me to? Is it primarily that the job is king? Or is it I'm a Christian and I happen to be serving at such and such company during this season of my life. And I'm gonna do everything I can to see God's kingdom be on display here. And I realize that's gonna cost me some things. How does your faith lead you to prioritize how you relate to the place you live and the place you work? Or is it, if you look back, you see that your relationship with God is just kind of secondary to those things. What do our relationships in our neighborhoods, our city, and our places of work say about our walk with God? Because they are communicating something. Whether you want that relationship to communicate it or not, it's going to. If you find yourself in a place, church, where you feel unfruitful or ineffective, maybe your life looks a little more like Lot than Abraham's, I want to encourage you to to ask God if your priorities are in the right place and just repent. You can walk with God in an open way with that because what I see in this room and what I'll see in the second service and those people that are still online is an opportunity. I, I, had, I had a guy ask me in my discipleship group this week. He said, what are you praying for and how can I pray with you? And I had to step, step back and think like, are my prayers like things that I can kind of control? Or are they like God-sized kind of prayers? And I, and I just said, I just kind of uttered, I said, I want God to change Lawrenceville through this church. <laughs> and it sounded crazy and big, but then I started thinking, but he can. He can do it, amen? He can do that. But we've got to ask for it. And I think he's going to do it through you, church. Secondly, it gets worse, okay? Um, our burden of sin is exposed through what we're willing to sacrifice. I love working with recovering addicts. I love them to death. Many of you know that I come from a, 
a family uh, that has a history of uh, uh, addiction and substance abuse. Um, some of those in recovery, some of those not. It's hard, right? It's probably your family as well. And if, I just wanna say this, if that's you and you're in here, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. I think, that, I think that recovering addicts have the opportunity to get the gospel in a more unique way than people that have never struggled like that before. Um, and so um, here's the reason why though. In order to be in recovery, you have to be to this place where you actually believe what I'm about to say. There is more Sodom in me than I ever dare to imagine. There's just more in me. I'm capable of much more than I could dare to imagine that I'm capable of in my flesh. I'm way worse than you think I am. To be able to say that is to take the power of temptation out of the enemy's hands. And, you know, the, the only way we get in recovery, um, so let me back up. We, we could say not just recovery from addiction, but really we're all uh, addicts of sin in one way or another. Some of us are just in programs or we get put in jail for a season or because of the consequences of our sin, but we're all addicts to sin. We love it. We love it. When I, when I see that verse that Lot's wife looked back at the city and she just longed for it, it makes me think about my struggle with sin. I'm a lot more like her than I'd care to admit. And here's the deal. All of us are addicts of sin, but all, not all of us are in recovery to that addiction. Not all of us are in recovery to that. The pattern I see in an addict's life is this. The only way that change occurs is when God opens up our eyes to see that the cost of sin is not worth the fleeting pleasure it affords. You have to get to that point where you realize that sin has required everything of me and it's given me none of what it promises. That's the only way you'll be done with it. That's the only way you get there. So let's look at what Lot was willing to sacrifice because I think it tells us a lot Pun intended there, I guess. About, um, you got it, that was good. <laughs> it tells us a significant amount, uh, uh, it tells us a lot of stuff about, I can't stop saying a lot, sorry. About his journey with sin and what he was willing to do with it uh, and how God used it or didn't use it. First thing we see he sacrifices is he sacrifices his daughters. Verse eight says this, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. I read that and I, that just seems unimaginable to me. To give up the purity of your daughters that you know will eternally affect their relationship with other people and with God and with their father. To be able to be willing to give that up in a moment just for a little more Sodom. I, I can't imagine getting there, but I do know this. When, when you're not in recovery as a sinner, you'll make the most irrational decisions imaginable. And you'll look back and say, how did I ever get there? Lots there. Secondly, we see that he sacrificed his sons-in-law. That's a weird phrase to say. Megan says that's how I'm supposed to say it. So I'm gonna say sons-in-law instead of son-in-laws. All right, that's what I did there. So verse 14, here's what we see. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Jesting means joking. His sons-in-law, 
They didn't have a category for the consequences of sin. They thought it was a joke. The fact that God was going to destroy this place because of their sin. They thought it was a joke. My question is, why did they think it was a joke? Because Lot's relationship with God was a joke. It was an absolute joke. And so they hear him, they hear him proclaim God's word that God speaks to him. And it's a joke to them. Like something they had never heard before. It didn't carry any weight, didn't carry any influence. He had let Sodom disciple these men who were leading his daughters. That's why there was no fruit. Maybe our kids, maybe they don't laugh at God's word, literally, like these guys did. But maybe the truth of who God is and what he's done and what he's going to do is laughable to our families because of how little we mention it and prioritize it. Friends, if our kids are getting more Bible on Sundays than they're getting throughout the week in our homes, they're going to laugh at God's word. It's so, it's, it's so hard for me to tell this to you because I would love to tell you we have these amazing quiet times with our kids and dinner table. It's so, I got four degrees in Bible stuff and I can't crack open the Bible with my kids. I'm just like you. But if this is the only word that they get week in, week out, they're gonna laugh at God's word when it gets tough. And I don't want that. That's not what's gonna change them or change our city. What's it look like for you to lean in more if you've got children or friends where maybe your relationship with God really isn't on the table because God's word has no part of the dialogue? What would it look like for you to just lean in a little bit more right now? Because when judgment comes, I don't want my kids to laugh at God's word. I don't want that for you either. Third thing we see is he sacrificed his wife. Verse 26, she looks back, disobeys God's word, and an instant judgment. We look at it and we think, that's so unfair. It's like that guy that tries to catch the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant when it falls, an instant judgment. It's because we understand so little of God's character, how holy he is. I think this is Lot's fault. You know why? Because as husbands, we have a responsibility to do what? Let me remind you. This isn't as a rebuke, unless you need it to be a rebuke. It's just as a reminder of what God calls husbands to do in a marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with what? The word. Lot had the promise, he had God's word, and he didn't take it serious. So his wife hears God's word and she's like, yeah, I'm just not gonna listen to that. Men, are you washing your wives with God's word? Is it a part of the dialogue in your marriage? Because if it's not, when times get tough, we'll laugh at the promises of God's word. And it's ultimately, this is what happened in the garden, right? God's word didn't hold proper weight in Adam's life, and so it didn't in Eve's. It's the way God set it up. 
I want to encourage you to step into that leadership for God's word to be on display in and through your marriage. Fourth thing and last thing as we see is this, is that Lot nearly sacrifices his own salvation. Let me read verses 19 through 20 for you. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown him great kindness in saving my life. He's buttering God up a little bit here. He says, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. In other words, I need the city more than your word, God. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. It's not even a big one like Sodom. Let me escape there. Is it not just a little one? And my life will be saved. He's trusting the city to save his life, not the Lord, right? You see this here. Sodom, and it's because Sodom has become Lot. Sodom is discipling Lot. Sodom never leaves Lot. That's why he wants to stay closer and be in this city. He's unwilling to lay it all down. And so they leave and they go to, to Zor, and eventually they go out of Zor. And then what happens when they're in that cave up in the hills? So, is Sodom not rebirthed? Is it not regenerated out there in the hills? The same exact thing happens with his daughters, right? That's because Sodom had become them. It's who they were. And I'm reminded of this quote uh, from John Owen, who's a Puritan writer, pastor. He says this, be killing sin or sin will, and I added always, be killing you. It's just the reality that we think that we should just run away from sin and kind of not ever be expose our sin. But the only hope that we have as people is by knowing what our sinful tendencies are and when they surface and when we commit them, bringing them into the light. That's the only hope that we have for redemption. Lot didn't get that. He wasn't in recovery as a sinner. God ultimately saves him because of Abraham, but we, this is the last mention we see of Lot in the Bible. Do you know that? His daughter's sleeping with him in a cave and hiding. What a sad, sad narrative. Church, what is Sodom promising you that seems better than the gospel this morning? What is it that tempts you to just indulge what is it that you're grasping for that you don't want anybody else to know? What would it look like for you right now to bring that into the light and trust the Lord with it? What would that look like for you? I'm gonna land the plane here, this last point. This is the, one of the main things, obviously, um, is that our burden of sin will be revealed through judgment. Just wanna remind you what happens here. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when light came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning. Remember, he had been meeting with the Lord, had been praying for these cities, interceding. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley that he showed to Lot, Right? And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. And so it was that. When God destroyed the cities of that valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he, threw, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. We read this verse, and I'm tempted to say, man, that's not fair. There had to be a couple people in there that were worth saving, Right? The amazing thing about this passage to me is not the judgment of sin, but it's the grace of God. Amen? What we see is that God remembers his covenant with Abraham, 
And because of that, he spares this unrepentant and disbelieving man, this nephew of Abraham, Lot. Lot deserved to burn in that city. Friend, you and I deserve to burn in that city with Lot. That is what we are owed. That is what we deserve. But God sent Jesus to give us an escape, to snatch us out of that city and to rescue us. Jesus is the ark that Noah floated in when judgment swept over the world. Jesus is that hand that pulled Lot and his daughters and his wife out of Sodom. Jesus is the one who parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk out of the judgment that was coming to them. And the one that swept over the Egyptians after the Israelites passed through. Jesus is the one that walked out of the grave for us, church. He's the only way we escape this. But we need a, we need a deeper theology of judgment against sin. It's something that's not mentioned much in the church. It, in, in, the, in like the 80s, it was like the only thing that was mentioned, right? But now, it's not mentioned hardly at all. Hell is like an afterthought. It's a part of the whole counsel of God's word. We need this deeper theology of judgment of sin. Why? Because it will drive us, not in fear, but to understand how good our redemption is. Derek Kidner, who wrote a, a commentary on Genesis, talks about judgment in two ways about this passage. And he says, he says uh, you see two aspects of judgment. The cataclysmic, as the cities disappear just like that in brimstone and fire. But there's also the gradual judgment against sin. As Lot and his family reach the last stages of disintegration, breaking up in the very hands of their rescuers. Think about that picture of just breaking apart the slow death of it. So let's look at this swift judgment quickly here. This, this narrative is the textbook example of what will happen when Jesus Christ returns. It is exactly what will happen, he says. When he comes back to complete our salvation, those that are in Christ, by judging the world, he'll redeem the saints and he'll remake the earth. Listen to, listen to it yourself from uh, Luke chapter 17. It says this, Just as it were in the days of Lot, people were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building and all those other things we saw that he didn't mention here. Life was happening, in other words, and they were joking about it. They were living as if God's word were a joke. Okay, so Jesus lays that groundwork, that understanding, but he said, but on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be, church, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his, his goods in the house not come down to take them away, just like those guys that Jesus talks about that wanna, they want to go back and take care of things before they follow him. He said, don't do that. Likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back as he's plowing, and then he says these three powerful words. It's an entire verse. Remember Lot's wife. You could write that down. Remember Lot's wife. And that's so significant for us because we need to know that God is just and his word will come to pass 
We might not know when it's going to come to pass, but it's going to come to pass. He goes on to say this, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left when Jesus returns. There will be two women grinding flour together. One will be taken and the other left. Then he said, uh, where, Lord, he said to them, and he said, where the corpses, the vultures will gather. In other words, it's going to be obvious when Jesus comes to judge the world. It's going to be obvious to everyone. So Jesus will return and judgment against sin, every sin on the face of the planet that's ever been committed by any person will be judged. Why? Because he's just. Nothing gets past him. Nothing's in hiding. Everything is in the light to God. And you're like, pastor, okay, come on. This is a lot of bad news, right? If you're waiting, friends, to sow your wild oats and then really come to Christ with your heart, you're living on borrowed time. If you're willing to delay following him because it seems too costly to repent, whatever that means for you, whatever needs to be out in the open, whatever needs to be confessed, whatever needs to be changed, if it seems too costly, remember Lot's wife. If it seems too costly because it's going to cost you everything, if not, judgment will happen in the blink of an eye and only those who are in Jesus Christ will be covered and shielded from judgment because of his cross. Second thing we see is that there's gonna be this slow judgment that we experience now. Lot and his daughters. Let me remind you what it says here. The daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Friends, the Moabites and the Ammonites were severe enemies toward God's people. God's judgment would be a slow burn from this point forward um, across generation after generation of Lot's family and against God's people. And this is why we too experience generational sins in our families. No matter what line you come from, there are generational sins in your family, aren't there? There are. There are, there are. And there are these patterns of addiction, there are these patterns of divorce, these patterns of self-absorption, patterns of bitterness and gossip, patterns that never ever seem to end unless God's grace breaks in. And he does. Listen to how God's grace breaks in to this lineage of destruction. Matthew chapter one, this is Jesus's family tree. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite, in other words, a descendant of Cain, the first murderer in the Bible. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, the Moabite the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. There it is in the line of Jesus, God bringing back these lost, hopeless families. Because of grace, church, no one is outside of God's reach. And that's why we give our lives to make him known. We feel the effects of this slow burn of judgment as we live throughout our lives. Every time we turn on the news, every time we go to work, Every time we take a stroll through the neighborhood, 
But what if these feelings of the fall, these feelings and experiences of the slow burn of judgment could lead us to Jesus? Every sin in thought, word, or deed is going to come to light, and someone's going to pay for it. I promise you that. I would be a liar to say anything else. And the reality is, it's either going to be Jesus Christ in your place or you. And I'm giving my life to help people find it in Jesus. Will you do the same? Let's pray together. Father, this story is one of the heaviest realities in all of your word. God, it is so weighty. It is so weighty to consider the fact that when I read it, I get offended. And it shows how little I understand of your holiness and of your character and of your justice, Lord. Lord, I'm willing to bet that's probably other people in the room. Father, I pray that you would use your word today. I pray that you would use your word specifically for those in this room who are not followers of you. Maybe they're followers by uh, just kind of by, by word or by even uh, action showing up here, but they're not followers in their heart. God, I pray that you would raise them from the dead this morning through repentance and confession of their sin and that new mercy may just pour over their lives. God, don't let us leave this place still thinking that your word is a joke. Father, rescue those of us that are like Lot's sons-in-laws and his daughters and his wife. God, rescue us. Rescue us in this room who are much more like Lot than we'd care to imagine. Rescue us, Lord, and show us the great hope that we have in Christ more fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.